This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, morning, Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warhol Man Cave in the piney woods of north central Florida, God's country, in the Melvin Law Studio, protected by crime prevention. Well, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? But I got it out. And as you know, Melvin Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Fighting Gator. And crime prevention protects us 24-7, 365. And we got great sponsors, Ocasio Allstate Insurance Full Service, R&R Construction, Style cuts, on-and-spot cleaners, shoot GTR, and we got people who also donate to us. We really appreciate that a lot, and uh, we're able to do our production costs, able to do our research, and uh, we also encourage you to have a cup of uh, Caliber Coffee, calibercoffee.com. Uh, you word fifteen, and you get fifteen percent off, and we get a small sliver cut of that. But beside that, we drink the coffee. And um, really, I recommend that you give it a whirl, give it a taste. Well, what else can I say today before we launch into, um, we've got a great show coming up next week. I'm going to keep that um, kind of quiet for you so you can't guess it ahead of time. But I think it's going to be a crowd pleaser. And uh, you'll uh, um, you'll figure that out um uh, Plantation Mark keeps complaining about he's got no audio, and it's his computer. And you know, this is a man who was a master chief. Come on, big. Uh, and he, he, he'll get it. He'll get it in a minute. So um, it's a big day. It's a big day because <clears throat> you're beginning to see all these shakeouts come home to roost, as they say in both college football and pro football. And even though this is not Coach Hogg's locker room, I feel like we got to cover the news when it's hot. And uh, this is a pretty hot story. You don't hear this every day. And that is a guy like Nick Saban, arguably college's greatest football coach, <clears throat> It's hanging up. He's 72 years old. I've got my own kind of suspicions about what helped him get on out the door. <clears throat> and he's it's a fortuitous moment for him in that because of where he is in his career, he can opt to part ways with the game Obviously, he's been involved with all of his life and involved in quite successfully. And what he's talking about 
that I haven't seen anything I've been reading about is the NIL and the collective. If you're a coach in college, which we're going to cover first, college, you have got the most difficult job doing it right that you've ever had because you've never had circumstances like this before to complicate what you're doing. And that is by the NCAA's reluctance or inability to take charge and do things according to some sort of ethical standard They've allowed, really, the deal deals made on the street corner to start being the way in which the game is paid for and the way the money that it makes is distributed. It's kind of an unsavory image I have in my mind. We know about the drug business. It's kind of an underground business. Although it's more and more in the open every day. Same with college players. There has been a side to it that has not been copacetic, let's say. And we're talking about the money under the table. We're talking about moving a kid's parents across the country and setting them up with a job, a good job, if that kid comes to their college. I mean, you know, stuff that's not really illegal, but what? And so this has been going on. And you can check it out and find me to be accurate, not so accurate, or fairly accurate. I think you'll find it's very accurate. And the irony is that coaches have lost their jobs for not preventing this. But they've only lost them when it's come out publicly that's been going on and they weren't preventing it. Basically. We've got a couple of real instances of that here. The most significant of which, I would say, would be Charlie Pell. Charlie Pell, in most people's opinion, you know what they're talking about, was a game-changing coach at the University of Florida hired. He was so successful. I think he went from 110 one year to 10 one the next. Something like that. That somebody turned him in for paying a kid's alimony or child support. I don't Some little deal by today's 
examples, surely. And that got him canned. That upset Coach Pell so much that he even tried unsuccessfully, by the way, to commit suicide. I mean, that's how much it wiped him out. Today, all I can tell right now in Florida, we're paying about $1.7 million for the quarterback who hasn't even put on a uniform yet. Paying seven point five to the head coach. These are these are numbers that are check. I don't know. That's what I'm being told. <clears throat> we didn't even go to a bowl. We didn't even go to a bowl. There are eighty four teams that went to forty two bowls. Until we about ready to, we had more bowls than we knew what to do with. But we'd have Florida. Anywhere. And yet we had all that money invested in this program. Just football. Basketball. Off to a lousy start there. Bunch of money being dumped in it. What's going on here? Well, if you're a coach, you got problems. You don't raise the money yourself. I mean, you try to. You get an organization called the collective to raise it for you. And those collectives is a no-holds-bar outfit. They can have more money in the bank in Texas than they have in Virginia. They can have more money in the bank in Georgia than do in Florida. So they can pay more money for their team. So along comes Saban, and he's had a tremendous um, success ratio. He also did a very good job of hiring assistants. He hired Lane Kiffin to run his offense for him. And that was successful. Now Lane Kiffin is successful at Mississippi. Saban's a defensive coach. And he coached the defense. But this guy has got the same pressures in spite of all this. Success and money and reputation He still can be outspent and has said so publicly how he can't stand the NIL and the collective. 
Now, the job he's done at Alabama, just there, don't, let's not talk about Miami or anything else, just Alabama, it's been amazing. Because Alabama has managed to hold on to its ferocious, ferocious reputation it had starting with Bear Bryant in the early 60s. When I went to military school in Alabama in 1959 and 60, I had a friend whom we knew was just there waiting around. Coach Bryant had parked him there until he could use him. Had parked Red Wilkins from Baymanette, Alabama, in the military school. And we had a football team, and Red played on that team. It was kind of Bear Bryant's farm club. And then Red Wilkins went up and played for Bear Bryant. That was the real beginning of a dynasty. And by golly, Saban didn't let it slip away. We've had fits and starts at a dynasty. The only one we've really had is Steve Spurgers. We had a little bit of one with Urban Meyer, quite successfully. But it wasn't something that was going to become synonymous with Gator football. It wasn't synonymous with Gator football. So this ability to maintain high quality is more and more difficult for a coach to control. I offer you this morning as a subset of reasons, and I don't even think it's a subset, for Coach Saban to hang it up. The next guy who comes there to Alabama, no matter who it is, is not going to have the same set of circumstances. Absolutely not going to have the same set of circumstances. So the other thing which Nick Saban's going to take with him is a standard of discipline that not all coaches can get their players to live under. I listened to a story yesterday on national TV about Nick Saban and a player and a player missed a meeting or was late to a meeting. And the next thing everybody around the locker room knew, the player was in full pads uniform running on the treadmill. Disciplined by Coach Saban or not paying attention to details, every single detail that it takes to be great. That's a difficult thing to get anybody to do in any profession. 
the little details, the habits of perfection, build a big habit. Saban evidently had that. The high emphasis on physical conditioning. So, Coach Bryant's last season was at Alabama in 1979. Alabama went 12-0 then. And you can see that the standard of excellence has been pretty much, would you not agree, maintained over all these years by Saban. There been other coaches in between. Don't get us wrong. But uh, the rich program history at Alabama um, began to get a little bit scandalous once in a while. Um, things he had to look out for. Um, more pressure. Um, to do things, quote-unquote, the right way, and what was the right way was less and less, obviously, the right way. But having still great players come over there, Julio Jones, um, Mark Ingram, Mark Barron, top-rated classes playing for national titles in what is it's not even arguable, the toughest conference in the country, the SEC, where the top programs are so close that the coach had better be able to teach those young guys the importance of doing every single little thing right. And so he had something called the process, which was a finely tuned program for developing players and molding teams to what he called the Alabama standard. Every season began with a carefully scripted, the New York Times has written about this in The Athletic, 365-a-day mountain climb, so to speak, so that the next game, you were better than the game before. So that process came a story in itself. And players knew it that they bought into it, they would be able to realize their own dreams. So, history will show that Saban, I think history will show, got out when the getting was good. If we now turn to the pros, 
we will find that Bill Belichick is gone, along with some other coaches. But Belichick probably um, is the most well-known of the bunch that uh, the argument can be made didn't know when to get out. And I want to look through a, a few things that were said about him here. He was the Patriots coach for 24 seasons. Now, he had six Super Bowls. But he finished uh, this season with a 4-13 and record. It was the worst season for the Patriots since 1992. But what happened? One of the things that happened, he lost Brady. The quarterback on any football team, anybody will tell you this, is the best athlete on the field in ideal situations. He is the best athlete on the field. It helps if he's also one of the smartest. Because he's got to process information and make quick decisions. And then that's the intellectual part of it. And let his physical part of him take it over and execute it. When coaches realize, and most of them do, I think, in the, in, in, in the game we're playing days today, the passing game, the best athlete on the field is the quarterback. You then find the best lineman you can find to protect him. Uh, my contention is, yes, the quarterback is the best athlete. He can chunk it, okay? He can run. He might even be great basketball. He might be able to dunk it. Generally, he can go back and forth. Might be a great baseball player. But the guy who really makes it go is the offensive lineman. And the great one is the most difficult specimen, if I may use that word, of all defined. He ought to be. If he's a tackle out there, 6'5", guard, we may bring him down to 6'3", somewhere in there between 3 and 5. Center, he might be closer to 6'1", although we want him big too. We want him, let's say, 6'5". We want him 300 pounds. Tremendous strength in the thighs and buttocks, the chest. But more important than that is a ballet dancer's feet. The ability to pull and get out there and clear the way. The ability to drop back and catch those guys coming in wide around. That athlete, I observed when I was around huddles, 
was the most difficult one to find. Maybe it could find one. Maybe it could find maybe two. But find a whole line? Tough, tough job. So, Robert Kraft has been a consistent owner. They haven't had uh, this business of Well, they have, but it's not called that. But the collective, the collective is the owner. And the collective is the one who can pay the money. But that's not really where the money's coming from. The money's coming from the same source that it's coming from for college. And that is television. Television is where it is coming from. And you have to ask yourself, well, who is television? Television is you and I. This sport dominates the culture. It electrifies the culture. It brings in by far the most money of any sport. So Saban saw all this and wisely, I suspect, said, I've made my contribution, I'll move on. Where does that leave everybody else? Let's take the University of Florida. It leaves them right in the same spot they were, only maybe worse. They don't have the tradition anymore. Somehow they've let that get away. They don't have the money that other SEC schools have. They are in the SEC. They're not in the ACC, which you saw what the culture thinks of that league in terms of football. So now the question becomes, are the same old top four or five going to be the same old top four or five forever? Very good chance they will be. Very good chance they will be. Particularly if they can find a coach like LSU did, hire that coach away from Notre Dame, no matter what the money is, find that quarterback, no matter what the money is, a college quarterback, pay him like a pro, pray that some other college doesn't pay him more after he commits to you, find you somebody who can catch it, and some people who can protect him. And maybe it'll work. Now, the other rumor that we've heard, this is not Coach Hall's locker room today, but it's kind of an eventful day in terms of American culture. This Kirby Smart is being wooed by the Atlanta Falcons owner. 
Interesting, is it not? The Georgia coach probably has it better than any other coach in college football with the exception of the way the Final Four worked out. For Georgia to go play FSU in Miami didn't bother FSU in the least. It did not help Georgia one iota. So up here where the gods are playing right now with the American culture, up on the Mount Olympus of American culture, above the clouds there, there is quite a bit. Throw in the TVs. Let's see who's around that table. You got coaches. You got TV executives. You've got very, very, very wealthy corporations. And they're cutting the pie up. So let's see how that works out. But today was a big day in American culture. A pro coach of great reputation gets fired and a college coach of great reputation retires. Be right back on Ward Scott Files with Ward's weather in just a moment. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Stop Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! 
All bees poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward's Weather, brought to you by, guess what, Lewis Oil, Chevron gas stations. No climate warming. Don't buy into that right away. Come on, come on. Chevron, fossil fuel, Wendell Lewis, Ward Scott Files, you got it. Well, as you know, a couple days ago, we had a heck of a rain vent here in the Piney Woods in North Central Florida, and basically had it all over the country. I mean, a rain event. And it came down. Looks like we could have another one around here and all up the coast where Plantation Mark is into New York again Friday and Saturday. Out west in the Tahoe area where I have skied quite a bit. Magnificent skiing out there. There was something happen that, God, you hope never happens, and that was an avalanche. Most avalanches are prevented, as you know if you ski, by deliberate dynamiting. Dynamiting is done outside the ski boundaries, that is, the places where you can ski, to head off potential Avalanches. It's unheard of for there to be an avalanche within the ski boundary where you're actually going down the trail and you look up and here comes a mountain. That happened in a Tahoe area yesterday. One fellow was buried alive, died. Several other were others were buried alive and saved has to be frightening. And this was a spot on the mountain where it wasn't the beginners. It was a double black. So people knew what they were doing there. But Mother Nature, avalanches, so much snow coming down, so much that the mountain couldn't accommodate it. Now, I've skied in blizzards and whiteouts. Whiteouts are very scary. You literally can't see anything in front of you. And you just hope for the best. That you don't get off the trail. That you somehow come through the whiteout into a place where you can see more clearly. I've also been on a mountain when there was lightning. Been on the lift They don't like that either. So there are a number of things that can go wrong. You hope none of them happens, but yesterday, one of the worst ones of all happened in the Tahoe area. Wow. Wow. 
Wow. And yet we're going to have more storms this weekend coming from the west, coming down from the northwest, across down to the southwest, southeast, or we'll collide these two air patterns. So govern yourself accordingly. It will be potentially pretty strong where you are. I've been researching something that has uh, intrigued me for quite a while. And I've talked about it on the show every now and then. And I know it's on your mind. And that is the double standard. The double standard of justice. And all this BS that you hear, we are a nation of laws. Nation of laws that are interpreted. I ran across this in Epoch Times. It spells it out very clearly. I thought I would go through it with you all, my students today, and let you think about it, because I'm thinking about it. I see some fellows here on the screen who are in law enforcement, who have been in law enforcement. And by the way, I saw Eddie McShane on the screen a minute ago, the greatest high school athlete to come out of this county. But the Supreme Court is going to opine on the use of a key federal law that the Biden administration has been using in its ongoing prosecution of the so-called January 6th insurrectionists. Now, the legal experts are predicting that the Supreme Court will side on the side of the defendants, not on the side of the Biden administration. Now, there's been a lot of attention paid lately to Hunter Biden and the double standard he has. I want to pay attention to this one. The prosecution of the January 6th so-called insurrectionists, which were supposedly being commanded by Trump. Biden has been using, according to the Epoch Times article, an Enron-era obstruction law, 18 U.S. Code Section 1512C. The legal experts say this is being used improperly. 
what this is about is an evidence tampering provision. Evidence tampering that appears in the Corporate and Criminal Fraud Accountability Act of 2002, which, according to the Epoch Times, was part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act aimed at curbing wrongdoing on Wall Street. There was a former police officer, now get this, a former police officer, Joseph W. Fisher of Jonestown, Pennsylvania. He is the main defendant in this case that revolves around protesting the congressional certification of the 2020 presidential election results or the so-called January 6th insurrection. Now this gentleman, Joseph W. Fisher, I doubt you've ever heard of this before, was indicted two months after the January 6th breach for obstructing an official proceeding. They threw the book at him. Civil disorder, assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds, disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds, disorderly conduct and parading, demonstrating or picketing in a Capitol building. I mean, that's an mouthful. And he entered not guilty pleas to the charges. So on December 13th, 2023, the Supreme Court agreed to hear Fisher versus the United States. But the oral arguments have not yet been scheduled. Now, he's not the only one who arrived at the Capitol after Congress was evacuated on January 6th, who was also charged with obstructing an official proceeding. So the problem, according to the legal experts, really don't have a dog and hunt, if they're any good. The problem with this obstruction charge is that the accounting reform law under which Fisher and others have been charged, and this shouldn't surprise you if you've been watching Biden's Justice Department and Obama's also, is being used by the Department of Justice to prosecute people who were exercising their First Amendment right to protest 
the congressional certification of election results. The Sarbanes-Oxley legislation came about in the wake of fraud-related scandals at Enron Corporation and other major corporations. Enron had employed dubious accounting practices to conceal falling profits and exaggerate earnings. And they began destroying paperwork when they learned the indictments were on the way. Now that bill was signed into law by President Bush. So the wording of 18 U.S. Code Section 1512C is focused on documentation and ensuring it's made available for official proceedings. 1512C says, whoever corruptly, one, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempt to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. But the legal experts say it is, and it's a quote, utterly absurd Not just absurd, but utterly absurd for the Biden administration to charge the January 6th protesters with a crime that carries a 20-year prison term. The Department of Justice, according to legal experts, should get an award for creativity and the ways they've used the Sarbanes-Oxley. Now, remember what I said at the beginning of this discussion, students. You hear them going around saying, we are a nation of laws. And yet, you may already know this yourself, there are so many statutes that are written vague deliberately that the Department of Justice can use to bring charges against people for things that have no relationship to criminal conduct. And this is one which Congress Never intended to be legitimate. But meanwhile, 
The purpose of threatening a defendant with 20 years in prison is to get people to capitulate, to plead guilty, and for many who were accused January 6th, they did just that. So the Justice Department has taken the section of the law that says, quote unquote, otherwise obstructs and is using it as a free-floating provision for anybody who otherwise obstructs any official proceeding or attempts to do so can be subject to 20 years. Now, remember, the Justice Department is using a taxpayer's money to bring these charges. So the taxpayer being charged is using his money to defend himself against the charges from the government and pay the government for those charges too. So anytime the citizen gets an illegal hassle with the government, the citizen is paying two lawyer bills. Now, legal experts think the Supreme Court is going to do the same thing they did with a case involving a Mr. Burling. Mr. Burling was referring to Yates versus the United States. Mr. Burling was involved in this. He refers to Yates versus the United States, the year 2015. The Supreme Court in 2015, in Yates versus the United States, threw out charges under Section 1519 of Sarbanes-Oxley. Now get this. Against a fishing boat captain who disposed of evidence that undersized red groupers had been caught. A federal agent directed the captain to segregate the evidence. In this case, they were undersized fish from the rest of the catch until the ship returned to port. But after the agent left the vessel, the captain told his crew to toss the undersized fish overboard. The Supreme Court held that the law pertained to records and was not intended as an across-the-board ban on the destruction of physical evidence. 
they reason that the Sarbanes-Oxley law pertaining to paper shuffling on Wall Street does not apply to somebody throwing fish overboard. Wow. If you ever hear somebody say, we are a nation of laws, point them to this. So they've got the wrong statute. They've got the wrong law. They've done so deliberately. And in the case of Mr. Fisher, he was literally, they were able to show this, in the Capitol for five or six minutes simply walking around and then leaving. At no time did he obstruct any proceeding or destroy any evidence or try to obstruct any type of official vote for the presidency. He threw no he threw no fish back in the water. You know, it's the first time I've ever thought of votes in an election as fish in the ocean. And that's something. Votes in the election as fish in the ocean. So we'll see. We'll see. The experts think Supreme Court is going to throw out the prosecution of the January 6th protesters. Amazing? Amazing? Not really. Not really. What could they have been charged with? What is reasonable? I ran across this for the tail end of the article. And it would make perfect sense. Disorderly conduct. A fine of about $50. Protesters shouted, made noise. It's only fun. The capstone of this is that the Legal experts 
don't think this tossing out by the Supreme Court of this misapplied law will necessarily help Trump. However, they do think that Jack Smith's trial is a show trial. And even if he gets a conviction, the Supreme Court will throw it out too. You know, Ted Yoho and I have admitted how much time we have wasted as a government on this kind of crap. By the way, I'm going to post on production is going to post on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board a Ted Yolo's editorial that we went over yesterday about Taiwan and China. Well, we'll wait and see. So much suspense and so much riding on it. Have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.